Hello, welcome back to another episode of Group Therapy. It's been a while, uh, about a month, I think. We started putting out episodes almost weekly, and you may have noticed we stopped. Well, that is because we have moved. Don't worry, our showroom is still in the same place it's always been. However, our offices have been combined with our warehouse, which is about eight or so miles down the road. With a move like this, there are many things in disarray. Rather than waiting for our new studio to be finished before we put out another episode, we decided to take a break from our regular video podcast and just stick with audio for the time being. These episodes will still be available on our YouTube channel for those that tune in that way. For everyone else, you can still find us wherever you get your podcasts. So with all that out of the way, today's episode is on Pennsylvania whitetail archery hunting. Season is almost upon us here in Pennsylvania, and we are all very excited to get out in the woods. We cover the best times to hunt, the equipment we use, different hunting methods, whether that be tree stands, saddle hunting, spot and stock, and so on, as well as tools and tactics we use to determine the best plan of attack before our boots hit the ground on opening day. At the end of the show, we talk about the helium balloon theory as it relates to bedded bucks, and the conversation gets a little heated, so you might want to stick around for that. Pull up a chair, it is time for some group therapy. panel we've got Luke, Sam, and Josh from our sales team and uh, I'll just hand this over to you Luke. Give us a, a rundown of what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah absolutely. We're going to be going over I mean combined here sitting in the room I mean I've been archery hunting since I've been 12 and I'd probably say the same thing for you guys. We've been doing it here for quite some time and going to go over kind of when's the best time to hunt, what season like what time of the year, early season, late season, <laughs> equipment that we're running or we know other guys are running that have had great success with hunting methods i know here in pennsylvania there's quite a, an array of options for hunting methods that you can kind of go through everything like that um big thing that another big thing too is especially this time of year season doesn't open up here for till two weeks it's another two weeks about two weeks so it's scouting i mean it's crunch time right now of getting in the mountain getting some scouting down so Let's kind of hit it off with that since that's kind of where we're at right now is scouting. What do I'm brand new? I don't have a property to hunt, and that's especially for me is I'm a big public land hunter. I don't own property to be able to go hunt privately or anything like that. So, and I know you two are very hardcore public land hunters. Um, what do you guys look for? I'm just starting out uh, in my area. What am I looking for on a map? aerial photos what are, what are you guys looking for sam you want to start this off or? all right so first off uh the first thing i look at is uh so i spend a lot of time on um topographic maps and looking at land on x uh i use a lot of different scouting tools um spartan forge uh on x google earth google earth pro and then uh, also use the PA Game Commission app um, and locate uh, all the properties, the public land, public access. Uh, we grew up not hunting public land, um, which many, maybe not everybody knows on here, but Josh and I are brothers. So um, we grew up hunting the same properties. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, I mean, I spend a lot of time, actually not right now, most of the time scouting is done in, uh, you know, at right after the season uh, is when I do most of my 
my scouting for the year. Um, now it's just, you know, if you're running trail cameras, just checking last minute inventory or uh, I don't like to really go in and mess things up right now. That's, yeah, I'd say that's a big key is not going in and messing up as much as you can, um, you know, sporadically uh, because you're soon, you know, there's going to be a lot of people in the woods, a lot of transition. There's everybody, all the game animals are going to be pretty alert as to something's going on here really and soon. That's exactly it. I mean, yesterday I had yesterday I had the day off. I slid into the mountain there real quick, and same thing too is I bumped essentially a target buck about 200 yards from where I I go there every year, but I wanted to go in, do a quick inventory, get boots on the ground to check food source, deer if they're signed, what the trails looked like, or there are all the deer trails covered in cobwebs from spider webs. Like, that means nothing's using them if you're walking through spider webs all day. Deer ain't in the area. Where the thing on public land is those food sources are changing constantly. So acorns, like you were saying yesterday, or we were talking about, um, so like acorns, for example, are a huge food source for public land deer and PA because ag is not a really, um, a lot of our public land is not surrounded by agriculture. Um, a lot of it's mountains. So you have to find mountaintops. Yeah. You have to find those food sources that, but they're changing every day and those deer are constantly moving based off of them and re, focusing you know their bedding areas and um it only takes a little bit of pressure for them to start moving but then also this time of the year these deer are out also re uh locating just because they're breaking up out of their bachelor group so you yeah. may have had these deer on camera all summer but right now you're not gonna you may, you may not see them for you know they may disappear on you but uh that doesn't mean they're gone for good um it's a transition or, process yeah. yeah and that's kind of hitting on like best times to hunt is I know me personally I hunt two different essentially areas early season versus late season so as when I say that early season your first two three weeks of the season I would say deer are still on their feeding patterns they're still very much on their summer patterns hitting mm-hmm. their food sources hitting their water sources where late season is or the rut you'll probably we'll probably use that interchangeably here throughout so if you hear us talking about the rut or the first two weeks of November that's it's very interesting to watch, especially our whitetails in Pennsylvania, how it can go from zero to a hundred in the matter of. I feel like Josh, you've always had better luck early season than I have. I've never uh, it's hit and miss. So we used to have growing up a bunch of properties we could bounce around to. Um, they were private, but you know, good ag, um, a lot of hedgerows and you know cuts. It was it was ideal to be able to bounce around to play the wind every day. Uh, you know, wind's not good for this location. I'm going to go to this other property. Um, as we've gotten older, some of those properties have gotten sold. Uh, it's made us transition to, you know, hunting some public ground. We still have a small piece of uh, private ground that we hunt uh, pretty exclusively. But uh, it definitely makes you broaden, you know, how you go about your tactics uh, to find these deer and get in front of them. Absolutely. I would say... And I know Sam's Sam's kind of in the middle, but for me, essentially, I've had my best luck during the rut, during the late season. October 31st, in my opinion, is the best day to be in the mountain. If you can get off work or do whatever, October 31st is when I've always seen some of my biggest deer. That's that phase where whitetail are starting to go from, they're really getting into the peak of the seek phase, where they're trying to find that hot doe. And that's, you hear lockdown periods too, like towards the end of the se- season, it's very tough to hunt 
Um, it's very similar to early season because the Bucks are locked down. They're with that doe. That doe knows she's just going to be hitting the food source. You're not having those cruiser bucks out seeking. So it's very much going back to pattern hunting yep. where I kind of use the term pattern, pattern versus randomized mm-hmm. where that last week of October, first week of November is very randomized. The deer are randomized. They're out cruising. I mean, bucks will travel over a mile trying to find a hot doe. Yeah. And so just because you hadn't seen a buck all, you just because you haven't seen a big buck in your area, area, if you're hunting, hunting the does, if there's does in your area and there's food, the chances of a buck coming rolling through are very high. And I know, especially like if I have to go in blind, which a lot of the times, like very little scouting, I just find a good area on my topo map. I know I look for like, I look for saddles. I really love hunting a saddle where two, where two, two peaks kind of come together. It's a little low laying area. It's, kind of a natural corridor for deer to go from one side to the other mm-hmm. i really like hunting saddles especially that time of year when i go in blind and that's i check my onyx onyx is a great tool that's the one that i mainly use and i go in and read my topo and it's for somebody that hasn't read topographic map before it might be a little bit confusing but there is a lot of great classes and a lot of great research out there especially about going into reading topographic map especially for whitetail nothing beats boots on the ground but you can eliminate a lot so a lot of pressure from somebody who so like me i travel sometimes so going to another state you'd look at i mean i'm looking at maps constantly on the way out constantly during the day that you're on these small trips um doing anything you can to eliminate areas or also to identify access that's a possibility that you may not be able to see you know it may not be marked or just where is something going to be overlooked especially if you're hunting public ground most of those overlooked spots are going to be the best access but you're going to be able to get into deer a lot faster um the other thing is is you can eliminate you can almost identify where everyone else is going to be accessing from and that's going to be a bigger impact so yeah like you talk about saddles and stuff, you can identify those quick, but if you can identify a saddle and you see that there's four different access points to park there. Yeah. That's not, then you, that would be something that I would just eliminate it. Um, I would scratch right off the, the bat. things that people kind of, it looks like a great spot, but there's gotta be a reason why it's a great spot. Can't just be, Oh, it looks great. Yeah. But if it's got easy access from public land, that's not going to be, it's not going to work. Yeah. I know like where I'm at now, the area that I'm hunting in North central Pennsylvania is there's some access on the lower side of the mountain, but I'm going high, high up into the mountain away from people. And I know me and Sam talk about this is I'm, I'm two mile back from the truck or from where my tree stand is, is to find big deer. It seems like on public land in big mountain is you're having to get back in. And even during rifle season, but mainly mostly we're talking archery here is to get back in away from pressure because deer are very, very susceptible to pressure of boots on the ground, getting winded because they're not, especially here in North central Pennsylvania, it's a lot of big, big mountain country. So they're not used to seeing people. Low deer densities too. Low deer density. And they're not used to having human interaction where in the Southern part of Pennsylvania, where I'm originally from, there's a lot more agriculture. There's a lot more going on. There's more human deer interaction. So Mm -hmm. they're not as wary of pressure. So you can kind of be a little bit more liberal of being more boots on the ground, being a little bit more noisy, stuff like that. Uh, I agree with that. I think a lot of it too, um, talk about 
you were talking about earlier about November mm-hmm. and, you know, August or October 31st, the prime time for you. I think for me, if it really varies throughout the year. So season starts beginning of October. Uh, you know, what time of day are you going to hunt? Uh, most of the time, for me, I've seen more success in the afternoons, like late afternoons, mm-hmm. just before sunset is, you know, that's pretty much the only time you're going to see a lot of movement by deer. Uh, so that's a good time. Um, it's not necessarily, it really depends on the area, whether you're going to hunt mornings. Um, wind condition, everything, axis. You're factoring all that in. You know, as the season gets longer, you know, maybe spend a little bit more time in the woods. You know, still minimizing your footprint because you don't want to put the pressure and let the note, you know, deer really know where you're going to be at. Yep. Um, so come, you know, October 30th to that November 6th, which is one of my favorite times of the year, that first week in November where, you know, it's, it's prime time. I have certain um, spots that I, I won't touch. I'll go in this time of year, August, September, yep. go in, check, just do a quick inventory count, run a trail camera in there, plop it, let it go, go back in around Columbus Day weekend real quick, pull the card, make sure that it's going to be worth, the fruit of my labor is going to be worth going back in there. And I've been in there twice, and that's it. And the next time I'm back in there is going to be October 31st. Yep. And so having very minimal pressure on them. Where the thing, I have yeah. spots where I go every day. I can, yeah. I know I can, it's a quick, quick set, quick hunt just to get in the mountain and Trying to make something happen quick. And I think for me, for a lot of the spots that I'll go to on a regular basis, the, uh, the, I'm there more for, you know, taking inventory. Yeah. All right. I'm seeing where they're at. Where, where are they going? Where are they coming from? All right. And then I'm game planning for that later in the year as to where I can make a move and maybe hop in, a, you know, be pretty mobile and, you know, put up a stand quick I, and be able to sit and ambush them. There I, are spots that historically growing up, I know on our private ground that we hunt, you could say, okay, you're going to hunt. If you give yourself a week in the first week in November, you're almost guaranteed to have an interaction with a mature buck because historically you know how they're going to use that right. property. They, but use they that, may not be there all year. And that's but the thing they're that transitioning most people through don't. that. That area. Pennsylvania, you're hunting a lot. Of, if you are hunting private ground, you're not hunting large properties. So these deer are typically moving from one property. And you're going to have to deal with your neighbors who may end up shooting that deer you want to kill. But if you know your property like we do growing up and we've spent our whole lives there, I mean, historically, having that knowledge of, I mean, I know, for example, I've killed three or four buck on the same ridge within three days of each other over the years and it's and it's being patient and knowing that you know those deer are going to eventually come uh and you know you pass up the smaller deer throughout the year and it's as i said you're taking inventory seeing what's out there until it's time to really kill yeah um so i kind of view it like my my kind of scenarios that i'm running is almost necessarily like a quadrant as i have two to three stands on the very perimeter of the area on public land that I want to hunt that I can hit up real quick. But, and that same thing too, is checking inventory. Like, Hey, there's a chance. It's not like I'm wasting time because there's a chance that buck could be cruising around the outside of it, but I'm not getting into his core bedding area until it's go time to the winds, right? He's distracted and I can get in there. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that frustrates my wife and kids the most. And I get home at night, and they're like, oh, did you kill anything? Did you see anything? 
I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've sold some deer. And they're always like, well, you know, why don't you shoot one? Yep. And that's, you know, I'm very particular. We're trying to kill a certain age class. Uh, I don't, not necessarily how big it is, but yeah, you want to shoot a mature deer. So, you know, early in the season, you're going to see more of those young bucks, um, you know, does transitioning, but mature bucks, they're typically not moving a whole lot until later in that year. So, you know, it's, it's hard for them to understand that, you know, we're out here trying to do something yeah. uh, and have a plan. I think, I think you just hit the nail on the head too. And it's something that we talk about a lot in Pennsylvania is that it's very tough for us. If somebody shoots a 180 or 190 inch whitetail in Pennsylvania, that's an absolute incredible accomplishment. And somebody shoots a 150, even a 150. Exactly. Yeah. I get, I get excited over a 130 or 140. And that's kind of where I view it as, is I'm hunting an age class and there's nothing wrong with a 128 point is if he's four and a half years old, because a lot of the, we're not having the agriculture or as much food source or something along those lines to grow. Just, I would say buck. it's more, we just don't have the genetics. When you go to Ohio or somewhere, you're going to see, I mean, my interactions with yes. Ohio and the several times that I've been there is the mature deer are just, it seems as if they're more, there's a higher concentration, but in reality, I think it's just that their soil, there's so many different factors. There, Nutrition's a big yeah, thing, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily genetics. I mean, you well, will see quite a few big bucks in Pennsylvania. Yep. But they got to get to that age class. Yeah. And the biggest thing is so many people are shooting them, you know, one, two, three-year-olds sometimes. I mean, it, it can yep. be a big three-year-old, but you, you really got to be patient and let those deer grow up and, and fully mature. You never see the full potential of them. And that's what people always say. Oh, well, they don't have genetics. They don't have this. Well, how old was that deer? And how do you know? Yeah. I mean, And we are seeing a jump in that. I think the point restrictions in Pennsylvania have helped out quite yeah. a bit. Absolutely. We never heard growing up of, I mean, I never heard of anybody. Somebody shoots shoot. a six point that's out past his ears. You're driving down Front Street with the tailgate down. That's right. <laughs> Another factor, too, is the fact that, you know, Pennsylvania has more hunters per square mile than anyone else. Correct. Yep. So yeah, you've got yep. a lot of hunters out there, and not everybody has the experience that, you know, some of the more well-seasoned hunters have. So they're just looking for some, some bone on their head. To and, and that's fine, but. You know, we'll see. There's always a, a saying that I always hear, and it's like, five can't eat the horns. Or 95% <laughs> of the bigger bucks get you shot by 5% of the hunters. But that is because there is going to be people who are doing it different. And in Pennsylvania, for example, we have a lot of rifle hunters. So you don't see a lot of guys in archery season. That's why I enjoy it so much. I always have had this saying that weather. if I made it yep. to if I made it to rifle season I failed. Now necessarily you can't look at it that way because I may just not have had the interaction, especially now with the less time that we all get to hunt in comparison to maybe when we were growing up. So it's like you gotta look at it from it's not a failure, but there is gonna be a lot more pressure and that is when most of the deer are going to be killed is opening day of rifle season where all of a sudden Everywhere you had to yourself, um, you know, now all of a sudden it's just overcrowded. Um, And that's, you know, that's the difference on like public and private. If you have private land, you can kind of get away with some of that pressure not being. Um, Public land is a whole different animal here in Pennsylvania when it does get to um, 
I know most of the time when I'm scouting pu- season. when I'm scouting my public land, I'm thinking along the lines of what are other hunters going to be doing when I'm going out and I'm looking at like we hit on the access points or I'm out with having boots on the ground. I'm going, what's another hunter going to do? Yeah, like are they willing to put in the extra mi- the extra mile to get back into an area where there's not pressure to get up an hour earlier out of bed to get back in there? Scent control. Uh, what's what's going on? Um, also preparing for the terrain too. I mean, a lot of hunters, they're not going to be wearing their, you know, muck boots and stuff like that to go to some of the more swampy areas. Yeah. Um, where maybe you, you know, have the advantage by going through those areas. Access is going to be key. So if you get out of the car and you see a steep hillside, you know, that's going to eliminate people immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I get told I'm crazy a lot of times because I get up at, ungodly hours of the morning yeah. like <laughs> texting my my friends in my group chat my brothers and all their friends and saying hey i'll see you i'll, I'll talk to you later and it's three o'clock in the morning but i'm already on my way to my stand yeah and i for example like opening day rifle season last year on public land i never saw a single hunter but i was in there an hour minimum before everyone else now that's not always the key because that can always that can create other issues but I knew where I had to be and how I had to get there, and I wanted to be there before everyone else. And then I was the last person out, but that's my preference. Um, I also, you know, there's times during archery season, though, that you shouldn't even be getting to your stand until after daylight. Um, you got to know where you're going is the main thing. So The biggest thing is, you know, are you going to bump deer as you go to your stand? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that's why your access in is just as important as – you Even know, getting act- to that point. Mm-hmm. If and you can't get out. some places can be the best spot in the world, but you can't really get there without you know, blowing all the deer out of that area. Uh, and that's, you know, you just got to be able to understand that and hunt those edges uh, and not maybe get to where you re- ultimately want to get to. Um, but that's, that's the fun of, you know. And a lot of it is trial. Right a lot of it is trial and error too. We're kind of here sitting here talking and, going through everything and i can't tell you how many times i thought i had a prime time spot get a tree stand hung in there and access looks great and the first morning i go in there it's nothing but snorting blowing and stomping most actually a lot of my success during the rut when i've had encounters with mature buck and have harvested has been between 11 and one o'clock because especially because we get that full moon in there around that time and the buck are running all night they lay down right at first light but they're ready to rip and go again right around lunchtime it's nothing and I've better, had, though, than a November morning. Oh, agreed. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I, my favorite time is getting November at, like, 9 o'clock oh, yeah. to 10 o'clock. I think that, like, time after, you know. 9 to 1, baby. That's an uh, awesome. I don't typically sit through lunchtime. Uh, I'll pretty much bounce around because I'm not necessarily sure I want to be in that spot. Um, but. Oh, and again, it's being. I, it depends. There's a lot of depends. But. That mid morning, yeah. Tell you what, it's a great time to be in the woods. Yeah. Nine and ten o'clock is the sweet time or the sweet spot for typically get those bucks finally getting the does up from the night of running. Yep, they get that little morning rest. They're gonna bounce from they bedding bounce area. them up, and now they're out looking. Yep, bouncing back and forth from bedding area to bedding area, checking yep. for a hot doe. So I know we kind of we kind of went around this too, and I know hunting methods. So kind of the big ones here that some guys use not necessarily spot and stock there are some scenarios where you can get into spot and stock but spot and stock and running climbing stands running a hang on 
versus saddles versus ground blinds. And each one of those, in my opinion, has a good use. But there's also a couple that stand out to be a little bit better. And I know you guys, well, Sam, I know Stu's played with it a little bit. I have too. But Sam is huge on saddle hunting with being as light and mobile as possible. Um, You want to kind of take off on that? Well, Josh and I grew up with uh, Summit Climbers that we would run around with. And then um, both of us actually, I mean, we both went to the mobile hang and hunt methods. Uh, we'd hang a lot of stands and that's the benefit of having private land. Um, and as he said, we were always, you know, we always had access to ground. So we were always able to hang stands um, and bounce around from these mobile or these hang ons. Um, but when that kind of changed, we, we both became more mobile and, you run uh, hawk. Well, the problem too is you know you're always looking for that perfect tree. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and those you're very limited to a straight tree with no limbs coming out. Yeah. Some of the best spots are not going to work for that, and you know you start transitioning to well, we have the sticks. All right, I got mobile sticks and a hang on. Then I'm going to be able to move around. And now Sam's transitioned to you know the saddle hunting, which I'm not completely sold on. Yeah, so when I started uh, really getting into public land hunting probably about four, I think four or five years ago, um, I was hiking, you know, over mountains three miles in with a a lone wolf hang on on my back and some sticks. And yeah, it was way better than carrying a, uh, you know, a a summit climber, nothing against them. They have their spot and they're some of the most reliable stands out there, but from a white standpoint in a just overall size, it just didn't make any sense for me. And I continued to struggle with like how much I was sweating or just how much, how much I felt like I couldn't get to the spots quiet enough or, um, without, you know, exhausting all my energy. So, um, I tried out, you know, I tried out my first saddle and initially was like kind of doing makeshift to build my own platform and, tried that and immediately saw the benefits of how far I could go and how quick I could go and have continued over the years to uh, now um, running a company that we actually are going to are carrying latitude um, switch to their saddle and wear it into the stand wear out um, if I want to hunt on the ground because I don't see a tree that I actually want I don't feel the need to have to get in a tree like I used to with a hang on and be mad that I carried it so far but the benefit for me is just that I can get into spots that no one else can get into. Um, I don't have to be as high as everyone thinks you need to be. Um, I can hide. I can get in and out of a tree as quiet. Um, I've had deer that one of the coolest things is I was halfway up a tree in Ohio once. And um, I was had a couple does come in while I was hanging my stand and watched a, a buck mate with a doe right underneath me at f- 10 yards. But it just made me realize how quiet I was getting in that I had five doe in this buck and I had was hanging halfway up the tree and no, they never knew I was there, but so there's benefits to it. I always felt like climbers were loud Mm -hmm. and that was what really bothered me the most about them is that I always felt like if I could get the hang ons are quiet, but if I could get in a tree and get out of a tree quicker, plus being on public land, the last thing I want is to be there all night trying to get my stand down and, you know, I want to be, there's also an aspect of safety. Um, and 
what most people don't realize is like I felt more safe in a saddle than I did on a hang on because I constantly had my rope connected with my alignments belt or then and then my tether and I never was disconnecting from the tree. You always felt that tension. Yeah. Which is huge. And I didn't like that in a hang on where I didn't feel that tension. You didn't have that constant reminder that yeah. you were tethered. Yeah. And so like I'm kind of sim- more similar to Stu is that I'm running a set of XOP sticks in a millennium. And yeah. it's a little heavy. The Millennium stands a little bit heavier. But again, like I said before, is that I'm doing all day sits. So I would be comfortable. And I know the saddles are comfortable, but that's huge with saddles is, is quiet. Where And that's why I've gotten away from climbers because I summit, same thing. I've used summit for years. I love their, their rock solid. But again, you're going around in the dark with your flashlight looking for that perfect tree. And then you get three quarters of the way up and go, oh, crap, I can't go anymore. Yeah. And then you're I mean, stuck at about... 12 foot off the ground. Scouting comes in where you go in early season. I well, mark yes. tr- a lot of trees. Exactly. You mark them on your maps and yeah. then you come back and you know, I take you know that's going to be a spot. One of the big things is I take pictures of the trees in the spring that I and then at least have references all the way around or a video so that I know what the area around the tree looks like and in what's daylight cool. so that when I actually get there in the dark, I have a better understanding of what I'm going to see when it gets light out. The, big, the biggest hurdle I have to overcome when I'm going in with my tree stand is um and the property i hunt and i think it's true with a lot of pennsylvania because there's so many pine trees is silhouetting myself i guess I just, there's not enough kind yeah. of like back foliage for me i kind of stick out a little bit too much so i couldn't even imagine either a going in there in the dark and trying to figure that out or just even stepping foot outside of my truck with my tree stand not knowing where this the stand's going to go yes for me I, I i understand i do that too so one thing that I've found over the years is if there's a pine tree around, I will, with my XOP stand, has little holes in it that I will cut a limb off and some of the branches and put them in my stand up there just to give me a little bit of a barrier to, to break up what they're seeing. Yep. Um, it's not so, necessarily they can still see me, but it's just that 3D image of something that's in front of you mm. can break it up just a little bit. Yeah. So uh, now, where yeah. you guys have that idea, I have the saddle where I can. And I understand you're putting the tree, tree behind you the whole time, but at all times. So I'm never silhouetting myself, at least from where you think the deer are going to come from. Well, that's that's right. Yeah, but they can still come from behind you, and you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that comes back to what kind of area are you hunting? Uh, you know, the ridges. Is it cornfield? Is it? You know, it depends on where you're at and what. You know, in some method th- you're going to use. I, I've used, you know, we have this little list here. We have spot and stock. You know, I've used them all, and, but all of them are not necessarily good to be used at every situation. So uh, the spot and stock, we hunted, had one property that we used to hunt a lot, and there was no trees around. It's a huge field, but it's got rows of cornfield with some hedgerows and little little streams that go through it, and it was perfect to understand where the deer were coming out and going in and be able to go and get set up in one of those little, um, you know, drainage hedgerows in between the field. And I would go get set up and bury myself in and try to get myself in front of those deer, uh, you know, at that perfect time. It was some of the most fun times I've had hunting, you know, going to sitting in a row of cornfield, just two rows back and just waiting, waiting for it. And you having deer walk right by you. But that's all knowing, you know, playing the wind, understanding where you're going to get set up. Same and control. it plays into everything, whether you're hunting out of a blind, um, 
you know, they're going to work in different areas. You know, if you have your kids with you or something, you know, I'm taking a blind and trying to get them set up so that they're able to see something. And I think, too, is like going over the list here is I've, again, same thing, used them all. Ground blinds, I've really used them a lot if you're taking somebody new with you because it's safer. You're on the ground. You're not having to hang a double. You're not having to go up and hang two hang-ons on and one here, one down. And I mean, me and dad did that for years. When I first started archery hunting, I was about 18 feet. He's 25 foot up above me trying and talking me through everything, everything like that. We did that for years when I first started hunting. My wife and I do that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, but like, I know like when my wife goes hunting with me, I don't have any kids like Stu, but whenever I take my wife hunting, we're going ground blind. Yeah. Because it's, she's comfortable, she feels safe, and you can tuck that in along the edge of a field line and brush her in and be good to go. But that's hunting agriculture. I feel ground blinds are very useful in agriculture. We're hunting big mountain I with a lot of cover and not a very large view. It's tough to put a ground blind out in the middle of the mountain and hope for the best. You're right. cutting off a lot of your view. You're also putting it into a place that those deer, especially I feel like mountain deer, they know their surroundings way better than you ever could imagine. Um, One little thing out of place, it doesn't add up to them. And I never felt, I've personally never enjoyed hunting other than when we had those field properties to hunt that, that was the only time I felt we could ever get a ground blind in. Yeah, and that's how I've been. I There's a couple of places I have access to hunt with when I take her along. And same thing is it's a ground blind mm. set up in there. And that's it's kind of where I've really felt it. Same thing. I've never really had much spot in stock because 99% of my hunting I've done has been well, it's not like out west either where Correct. you know the terrain we got all the leaves and it's so loud you know in pennsylvania when you're walking through the woods it, it's much different you know than being out west you know the terrain's different so that's it's different type of spot stock today's episode of group therapy is brought to you by like coming archery like coming archery is our very own archery pro shop located in montoursville pa which is pretty much smack dab in the middle of pennsylvania we carry compound and traditional bows from Matthews, Hoyt, PSE, Bowtech, Diamond, and Bear. We also have a huge selection of in-stock pre-sighted crossbows from brands like Raven, Mission, 10-point Excalibur, Wicked Ridge, and Centerpoint. Along with all the accessories you come to expect in a high-end archery store, we also have a state-of-the-art pro shop offering full technician services. If you're looking for some camo, we carry the country's largest in-stock inventory of Sipka gear. So stop in next time you're in the area and check out what we have to offer. While you're here, take advantage of our indoor bow range. Now let's get back to the conversation. Segwaying in here to more talk about some equipment and some brands and everything like that that we carry or brands that we all use is that scent control, knowing your equipment, archery hunting. There's a lot that goes into it than saying going and buying a gun, getting a box of shells. Yeah. Foresight, my gun, going in, hitting a pie plate at 100 yards and saying, we're going to the mountain. Right. Archery is you're getting broadhead set up, you're checking your equipment, you're doing everything like that. So let's, and let's touch on scent control. Because I think in archery season, the biggest, biggest, most important thing out there is the wind. Yeah. Um, how, what do you guys do? Do you... So, well, we know. I know for we, me, I have. My, go ahead. We'll go down the. Theories. We'll go down the line. Go ahead. Go ahead, Sam. Start us off. So I don't really play. I do play scent control, but I don't worry about what I smell like going into the woods. And not that there's times where I don't think that has mattered. 
Um, but when you're walking two miles into a stand, good luck trying to tell me that you're going to be able to remain scent free and not sweat. So I factor in, um, and Josh or Sue will specifically know this, that I carry milkweed around constantly. So I'm always checking the wind, but I'm also checking thermals, which I feel are more important than, but it all depends on where you're hunting. So a lot of times, like when we would hunt open field areas, we would have the ability to where the wind and the thermals weren't different. But when you're up in the mountains, thermal will push, they'll take control of the wind and make it a lot harder for that wind to, uh, you know, basically there's no perfect wind in the mountains. Right. Um, it's kind of the biggest issue. So try to do as much as I can to predict it more worried about when I'm accessing where my wind's blowing as I access and then where I think the deer are going to be coming from, but they could come from, if the wind changes on me, I'm not getting out of the stand. And that's kind of, I'm a scent control. I am a scent control freak. I know it's so hard to control it a lot of the time, but I try my absolute conscious to keep it in mind because especially you're going back in that whole way. You have that target buck come into you. I don't want to risk having him be at 10 yards, wind switch, and go, there he goes, down over the side of the mountain. I'm washing, I mean, I'm washing my clothes. Everything's in scent totes. My wife laughs because that's the only time I ever do laundries during hunting season is because I got my routine about what I do with my clothes. I keep them in my Simlock bags, and I'm similar to Sam, is that I'm going way back in the mountain. Same with my dad. That's just kind of the style that we've been always doing and i have a separate pair of under armor that i wear when i go out i go out i wear that out and when i get about 200 yards from the area that i'm going i stop strip down get changed and roll that up into a bag and put it in my frame and put it in my pack and then i finish the rest of the way in See, I'm a freak. That's crazy. See, I'm a, I told you I was a freak. I'm just saying, no, I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying any of that. And that's Everybody's what's fun about you. got people who will tactic. shower before they go out to hunt. And, here, you here. know, I, I get it. And that stuff, you know, marketing has done wonders. Yeah. Um, selling people on this I stuff. I there's I mean, benefits. It, there's, there, there's definitely benefits. and It's going that extra I step. try to minimize my scent as much as possible. But you're never going to eliminate all your scent. No, and it's you're just never not possible. Trick a deer's nose completely. Nope. You can't tell me that deer is not going to smell you no matter what. Granddaddy's been killing bucks wearing wool rich smoking heaters all day. That's right. <laughs> and I'm out here washing so, my clothes. <laughs> you know, I think we get it from you know going out west. You know, you play the wind more. Um, whether you're going after elk, same thing. You transition towards from TV hunting whitetail and. Yeah. You know, I, I wash my clothes with scent-free stuff. I'm not going to lie. Um, so I, I hang my clothes yeah. outside, but I'm trying to minimize my scent. I, there's no way to eliminate it. No, and that's... There's not. That's how you I can't am. can't tell me that you well, can do all that stuff, and I'll fart in my pants, and I'll still smell it. <laughs> yeah. So it's not sealed up. There's not, you know... You mean you don't take the spray bottle out with you, and as soon as you fart, you start spraying? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Start spraying your field spray? I'm, so if you're playing the wind... You know, you're trying to put yourself in the best position oh, possible. Absolutely. It's not going to work out every time, but that's hunting, man. And that's like what Sam touched on is about, that's why I'm so conscious about it. And I know you're always going to have odor and you're never going to be able to trick that mature white tail's box nose. It's just, it's No, but I think nature. you can dampen it. You're, Correct. You can dampen it, but you're never going to eliminate it. And that's yeah. what, you know, these 
I think companies market it to, you know, it's 100%. And, you know, it's just not the case because your body is going to emit a scent. And so, yeah, by the time, if I did all of that and then I decide to walk in two miles, I've created sweat. I've created that. You've created scent. Yes. There's no way around it. I think, I think it's scent- just understanding how wind works in your area. Um, Getting Especially, set up to the right that, position. That a, a lot of that comes down to scouting. So what I like, I will do is, you know, when I'm out in these areas and I find a buck bed or something, I'm like, I'm spending time to realize why they're there. Mm-hmm. Um, dropping milkweed, and this just be after the season in February, um, March, when there's, you know, I'm not hunting, but I am not scared to bounce that deer out of there. Like, and I can get in there and I can access and find buck beds or, you know mature deer sign and i want to know why they're there how they're using the area and that's one of those things is that you're starting to scout okay well what winds are they using this on or why is why are they using it for like what what are the thermals going to do if it's rising or you know if it's cooling off in the afternoon what those types of things but that's how you beat the deer's nose, in my opinion. In the exactly, wind. it's mm-hmm. not one of my. It's f- not. Yeah, I'm just going to be able to sit wherever I want, and the deer they're not. Gonna oh, this is just not. They're the going to find a way, and they're using these senses to survive. I mean, that's that's the other thing. We aren't. Their noses are so important to them. That's right. It's how they. I mean, that's how they survive off predators and everything mm-hmm. else. Yeah. My favorite app that I use is called Windy. And it shows you wind they're, direction. They're on DoorDash, Wendy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah. every morning, before I go out in the mornings or afternoons, whatever, I'm checking to see at, you know, mm-hmm. 5 o'clock, where's the wind coming from? At 5.30, 6 o'clock, 7, you know, and so on and so forth. And as that wind changes, I want to make sure I'm getting set up to where at the peak time where I may see – you know, right before dark, where is that wind going to be at? Where was it before mm-hmm. I got there? So that way I can put myself in that, the best position possible. You know, whether I don't go to this one stand here and I go to another ridge. Uh, but I'm constantly looking at that stuff. And I just think that's so much more important than, you you're know, not making sure you're scent free. I think scent, I think scent suppression is probably a better term than scent elimination. Yeah, I, I agree with so, that. And that's why, like, I do all that because of hunting the mountain. I know you're not going to control it, but I try to. It's you a also control. can't control the wind as much. Oh, there. I know. Yeah. And exactly. It's and that's why I do as much as what I can to control what I can control is trying to be as minimalist and suppress my scent as much as because, yeah, I'm going to go up there and try to hunt that wind. I'm checking my apps, checking everything, and, and go, all right, this is why I'm going in here tonight, but. I've already been up there, sitting in there, get set up. All right, the wind's perfect. You're in there for an hour, and next thing you know, it's blowing right down where you want to be hunting. Yeah. And it's like, well, I'm already invested. I didn't bump anything. I'm just, I'm riding this out. And you may not need, you know, come rifle season, you may not need to play the wind as much. No. Because you know, deer are going to be pushed. Yeah, set uh, is, it, it, is it's really Time of year is a huge, huge factor. Yeah, rifle season is very much. Rifle season rifle season is more yeah i mean scent is a big factor i think maybe then but you don't realize it because those deer are so pressured plus you've got a lot more range yeah yeah with a rifle yeah you don't have to you don't have to be right close to them yeah you don't need them in you don't need them in 
35 yards and in your wheelhouse. But I want to back up a little bit, the, uh, the whole set topic. So my, my regimen, and I have this little gallon freezer bag that's got, I don't know, set gold or one of these markety brands. Uh, I got a stick of deodorant, body wash, laundry detergent, and I keep a spray bottle in my tote, which I end up replacing like every year. Um, and I'm not using these items thinking, oh, this is going to be a magical cloak and no one's going to smell me. But those detergents, those products like that, they don't have the flowery smell, the laundry smell. Like, right. I don't want to go in the woods smelling like, you know, a bar of soap. I don't want the deer to know that I'm using Irish Spring. You know what I mean? I, I, I do these things to just eliminate scent as a good baseline. Try to minimize yeah. it as yeah. much as possible. And then as, yeah. I, and as I get suppression. out of the truck, I give myself a quick spray down. But most importantly, I cover my feet as much as possible. Because I'm going to be cutting all the way across my property most times. Right. And I want to try to leave as little of a scent footprint as I can. And another quick tip for scent suppression that a lot of guys don't do is pulling the insoles out of your boots. Especially when you're hiking in the back. So do you wear rubber boots? I do. I don't. I don't either. I wear rubber boots. I can't. My feet sweat too much. You're putting off all that extra scent. So, But How that's why. Very minimal Every time I'm coming my out of the mountain, I'm access. putting them on my dryers. I'm pulling the insoles, putting them on the dry, on the dryers, everything like that. And so that's that's a very interesting. I think it's more: Are you wearing merino wool socks? You're wearing cotton socks. Correct. And I think this is this is yeah, very I interesting. I don't wear. I did forever, and then when we went on our first Western hunt, we both started wearing higher end boots, and. I've never been able to go back. See, now with mine, I'm wearing – I the ones that I wear actually are extra toughs. They're made in Alaska. I They fit my feet great, and I have custom insoles for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I couldn't go up mountain, though, So those safe in rubber boots. See, now, they are, they are rock solid. They're a rock solid boot, and mm-hmm. with those custom insoles, for me, it feels like I got a pair of Kenna track on because I know that that's what you guys are big on with them and everything like that. And for me, with having them – yeah. There's uh, some it, smiles here. Is there, is there an inside <laughs> joke to this? Or? No. No, you no, both were a competitor. Yeah, that's right. I know that. <laughs> uh, I actually just got a new pair of boots last year before the start of the season. I got the new, uh, I can't remember the name of them, but the, the new um, Under Armour style. They have the, the really good, like. Uh, Vibram. It has the, the kind of the rebounding effect in the sole where when you step down, it kind of gives you a little boost back up so you're not using as as much energy a little quieter yeah um they're super warm because they've got like a really high insulate rating on them so i don't wear i only wear 200 grain i typically have an uninsulated boot no matter what i think the Uh, ones i got are 400 and that's i'm uninsulated yeah too much that's too much so my big thing is that i will i'll find other ways to um stay warm out there with that Um, my problem is if my feet are cold um I'm ready to go. Like I'm, I, that's the first thing that's like going to make a hunt bad for me, and I'm going to really stop enjoying myself. If my feet are freezing, so one of the big things to do is like I, I will do this. I will take an extra pair of socks and switch my socks out on the way because if your socks are wet, you're kind of in trouble to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I'll wear merino socks, and yes, they'll dry quicker. But if I can carry all the way to the stand and then swap my socks out, then I'm getting a fresh pair of socks on that are dry. And then while they're, you know, those wet socks are drying, that's kind of where you're, once they're wet, you're done. You're, you're kind of in trouble. So let me yeah. ask you, have you ever been to a, in a situation where you had cold feet, changed your socks out, and then they warmed up? Yes. Okay. Well, that's what I'm saying. I do it as they're warm. Like, I'll do it when I first get to the stand. 
Okay. Oh, so I that, see. I see so then I'm not having to sit there with wet Prevent socks. Prevent them, get them cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So for me, over the years, uh, you know, you go from growing up, you're wearing Carhartts, and, you know, you have these thousand grain insulated boots, and, you know, you wear the heaviest socks you can, and, and you end up freezing all day. Well, as, you know, the years have gone by, and, you know, obviously clothing technology has come a long ways, but you learn to incorporate your system and use that to your advantage. So everything's system-based, whether, you know, from your base layers to, you know, your insulating layer to your shell. Um, same thing with socks and boots. You know, at most I will ever wear is 200 grand pair of boots yeah. because you start getting that, you know, there's no airflow and you have to be able to warm up that air. So if it's too constricted in there, you're not able to get your foot warm. All right, so, you know. Which is going to limit your blood flow to your That's right. Muscle. So I'll get a good pair of heavyweight merino socks with, you know, a 200-grain boot, and I am good to go pretty much all year. Yeah. Um, now I'll typically wear just a light merino sock and uninsulated boots, but that's if you're more mobile. I just have found that, you know, the less constricted my feet are in my boots, the warmer they've been. And they don't get, they, yes, they get cold, but not to the point where, you know, you're freezing, your feet are sweating, and next thing you know, you, you got to get out. You know, you're miserable in the stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Go back to camp, put your feet yeah. in front of the fireplace. The other thing is, is in this, I mean, there's other methods I've heard of people using. Um, I know people, some people put like, uh, there's. Well, they can, have hand warmers yeah, now. hand warmers and stuff. But another thing is, is that with, me personally, so one of the other benefits of me being in a saddle is that I get cold. I can climb down as fast as and just walk around my stand mm-hmm. for five minutes and warm my feet up. Just get them moving and then get right back up. Well, and I will do that sometimes, you know. You know, can, you can take an extra pair of socks with you and yeah. throw them on the outside of your boot and stretch mm-hmm. them over. It just gives that little bit of stretch extra insulation. Stretch them over and throw a hand doesn't, into the toe. It doesn't constrict, you know, the airflow inside your boot to allow that, you know, air to come and go. You know, it, you have that breathability in all these membranes in your boots. Uh, you need to keep that functioning properly. Once you, once you put too much in there, it's just it's not going to go good for you. Uh, we were talking about scent control. We are talking about technology for, you know, being warm and scent free and everything. You were talking about walking out two miles and sweating or whatever. Now, I got to say, and this isn't a plug, even though – we work for Eurooptic. This isn't a plug. Um, there's so much technology that I love about Sitka. And one of the things being is, I mean, you've got your, your wicking right there. It goes out. And the, the science behind it's great because um, I'm not going to get into, like, the water droplet size versus your vapor size of your heat coming off. But there's a lot of the material is made with the, that silver, that scent-controlling uh, component to it. So, I mean, if you're walking in two miles... Yeah, I mean, the spray is not going to do much justice, but I think you're better off with that type of system, with that material, than you would be otherwise. So, so it comes back to, you know, synthetics and natural fibers, and I think SICK uses polygene in their synthetics. Um, I'm a big proponent of, I love wearing merino wool as my base layer because it's naturally uh, odor repellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's when it gets wet, it's going to keep you warm. Synthetic's a little. It dries slower. Synthetic, you know, and it comes to personal preference, but synthetic is going to dry a lot faster. But it uh, With their 
I mean, they have polygene, but it does still, it you're still going to carry that odor. A lot. Um, and then layering properly on top of that. I mean, that's there. It's a system based design for a reason. And so you need to yeah. be able to understand how to incorporate those layers uh, to be able to get you through any mm. range of temperatures. Uh, and that's kind of the beauty of the whole system is, you know, being able to play for us. I mean, now I've used pretty much the entire line, but yeah. being able to play around with the system and talk to people and try to get them into the right situation for the, you know, the environment that they're hunting, whether it's a temperature or, you know, are you hunting in the rain or whatever, there's a solution for that whole thing. I've had a tough time because I hunt so much different than maybe sometimes people are designed for, like these clothing are designed for. My issue is the how mobile I like to be is building that system and finding a system that keeps you warm in November while you're going and hiking in this far. Um, I think it's really one of the things I like is being able to test and try all these products and put them to the, you know, see what works for me and, mm -hmm. and maybe it'll work for you. But at least then I understand, you know, why just doesn't work in the system and what I'm trying to do. Like mm -hmm. you're not going to wear a fanatic suit hiking back into the mountains. I wish um, I could, you know, <laughs> cause you, I wouldn't get cold when I was back. Well, there, you have to but find I a solution to like crazy when I <laughs> on the way, <laughs> but you have to find a solution to be able to either yeah. one pack something in with you uh, and layer it as you get to the tree stand or, Absolutely. you know, find a different solution and put that stuff to, to work. Uh, there's there's so many options out there and, and it's kind of you the beauty of it all. That for, yeah. yeah. I mean those sick of lightweight the the heavyweight hoodie is probably my favorite piece of gear. Because it's called the heavyweight hoodie. It's super lightweight, mm -hmm. super packable, and it's so warm. Well, and I use that for everything. And now they've come out with the new ambient stuff, which is kind of taking over and getting rid of that same thing, getting rid of the heavyweight and you know, you'll be able to wear something that's you know, has a little bit more loft and but still the same light. It's still going to be quiet, not yeah. be like some of their Kelvin stuff. So. I mean, I like this stuff. Obviously, it's like wearing pajamas. I love I love that stuff. I, we pretty much, yeah, I wear it every day. <laughs> Work. Punt. I think, too, this is kind of a good, good segue. We're talking about systems and layering and everything like that. Um, we talk a lot about, on our other podcast, about like what's in your range bag. What's in what's in your range bag? What do you take to the range? Like archery is very much system and knowing where everything's at. So like for me, and we can kind of go down the line here. So like for me, I'm very much lightweight hang-ons. So I got my sticks. I got my hang-on. I'm running. Um, I'm running a essentially a fanny pack, but it's a shoulder-strapped fanny pack because I can put my sticks on the top of it. I got room for my clothes and. When I'm going out archery hunting, I have five arrows in my quiver. I'm running five arrows. I'm running my release. I got my release in there. Extra set of gloves, extra set of socks. Um, I know Sam was talking about taking his milkweed with him. Same thing here. I always carry milkweed with me to check the scent. And just your general tools of the trade kind of thing. I always carry a set of, an extra set of an Allen keys in there in case something goes wrong on my bow. Because now... With our bows, it's very much evolved. It's not just stick and string anymore. So, like, on mine, my setup is, is I'm running a Bowtech Rain 7, um, shooting Easton FMJs, the um, full metal jackets, the 5 millimeters. I'm shooting fixed blade broadheads. I'm shooting um, Grim Reapers with a Spot Hog Fast Eddy. 
um, 62 pounds is what my draw is. And for me, bows are all very similar to shotguns. And we've talked about this previously on our other podcasts is the bow has to fit you. Just because I love bow tech doesn't mean that it's going to fit you or like stu- It's totally feel. You Correct. Know, what you prefer, how does it feel? It's kind of, it's comfort. Thumb release versus thumb release versus a resistant release versus a trigger versus a trigger release. Oh, you got one pin versus two pins, three pins, whatever. Correct. Everybody's a little different. You guys, you have run double and then you run, you run three pins. Yeah. It's kind of funny talking. It's kind of funny. A lot of us, the three of us here, I mean, this is everyday conversations for us. So, and it's very funny how similar we can be, but also still very different, even though we're, I mean, we're all running spot hog sites. That's all we're all running. We're all running very similar arrows because it's the same thing too, is I'm comfortable with my bow. Now I would never shoot at a whitetail at 70 yards, but I know I can go out back. I can go out in the backyard and start shooting group out at 70 yard and hold a group. But, and that's building confidence. And I know that because it's a straight extension of my body that everything fits right. My bow's in tuned. My broadheads are tuned. Everything is ready to go. So that when that moment of truth comes in and you got that target buck at 20 yards, it's second nature. It's pulling it back and letting it fly. Yeah. Let's talk more about broadheads because it's such a talked about issue. Okay. Because everyone is so different. And I want to hear what you guys think. With your, you know, fixed I think versus we're all going to have the same answer. So I know for a fact that all three of us shoot fixed blades. Fixed. You have a Grim Ripper fixed, mm-hmm. fixed blade. Yep. Yeah, fixed blade. And 80s. I've recently gone to this. Um, I used to use expandables and yep. had issues and have seen some very marginal shots that turn into, you know, uh, just the long blood trails, and then I've seen stuff that you know, the deflection of a basically where of, a, with a, of a, an expandable compared to the deflection that you're seeing off a, a fixed blade is and, totally different. And with Sam's opinion. going off of as what we're talking about is deflection is like so you have a deer coming and you're shooting quarter and away, so you're trying to put it in there between the fifth and sixth rib cage back. To run it through to come up and take out both lungs. We're on an expandable with only having that small of a tip that you're running a chance of deflection. And if you do read broadhead reviews, guys do that all the time. They take the sheet of plywood with a target and see how much of a deflection off of that arrow. And I know I've ran into issues with deflection with expandables. And that's where the hype with expandables, and they, they have their place. They do. They really do. And I'm not trying to be, and I know all three of us here are not like, I've Expand. killed plenty of buck with expandables. We're not expandable haters, but just for the style of hunting we do, expandables are great because they fly exactly like a field tip. You screw them on, you shoot them, yes. and they're good to go. There is no putting a washer on or adjusting you your fletching. Way more into it. yeah, yes, yeah, Stu's into this more than I. Yes. Yeah. So for me, I don't have anything wrong with expandables. Me I used them for years. Uh, when we started getting into um, hunting out west, going elk hunting and stuff, is when I wanted to have a heavier setup. So I wanted to have something a little more rigid, uh, and that really having that fixed blade gets you that that situation. So that's when we I made the switch personally. I went to uh, originally my first fixed blade. I would say I went to the Iron Will. Um, broadheads and they're fantastic um, 
super sharp, but again, they're on the expensive side. Um, I am now transitioning, and I wouldn't say transition because I'm still going back and forth between the two, but I'm testing out and using um, the G5 Montac M3s, um, which are pretty nice. Yeah. Um, I I have had good success with both. Um, And I just got the Exodus, the new Exodus for Redheads. But I I just think it's, it's more reliable. I don't have to worry about, you know, is it going to expand? One of the big something. things I like is that when it's inside the deer, I don't have to worry about how that. So if you make a questionable shot or also I feel more comfortable when it's hitting bone. Yes. Yeah. So it's hitting bone and then what it's doing when it's still inside. Basically, if you look at, I mean, you can break an expandable broadhead, you know, and they the broadhead or the blade is kind of slides in behind the other blade inside the broadhead, whereas that fixed blade is kind of just in there tearing stuff up. And that's one thing too, is this is kind of what I've explained to guys too, is that like you see pictures and I'm not going to say the brand, but when I make this comment is everybody knows what brand I'm going to be talking about is you see pictures and it looks like a hatchet just hit the side of a deer. Awesome. Great. You got great blood trail, but if you have... If you have ever legitly tracked deer, it is miserable. And especially on like a marginal hit, it is miserable to try to track a deer that's only bleeding out of one side. Where with your fixed blades, your chances of having a complete pass through are a lot higher because of the penetration. Hitting a bone, it's going to keep driving. And it's a lot easier to track with a double, with a pass through or a double penetration. Because I've been on both sides of it. And having a marginal hit with an expandable that only goes in and just makes one heck of a rip on one side. Yeah, it's gushing good out one side, but say it didn't drive as deep and it maybe only got one lung. After about 100 yards, you're going to, after about 100, 150 yards, you're going to be on your hands and knees looking for pins. Yeah, I mean, it's, it comes, in a perfect world, yeah. You know, we're going to always hope for the the perfect shot. Well, yeah. But, you know, things happen. The other Uh, thing is, you know, angle of attack. Just last year, same thing. Is a big thing. I've had some pretty miserable experiences in my life in the last few years yep. with, you know, hitting a few buck in the shoulder blade and not having found the other deer. thing is, yep. is yes, you don't want to hit them in the shoulder blade, but the all, the other thing about expandables are, is, you know, you're whitetail hunting and we all know here in PA, it can be thick and yes, you shouldn't be trying to shoot through things, but when an expandable may hit something, you may not see those branches. Those right. like the yes, twiggies and exactly. All I've had a time where I thought I 100% shot a deer. Um, he, it was an interesting situation. He caught me as I was going up the tree, and it kind of turned into a mess where he was. I could see him coming and had to get my bow up fast, and thankfully I was in a saddle, so I was still hang, hanging there, and I didn't have my platform set up yet. But I made a shot on this deer, and I was like, waiting for him to go down like i i thought i made a perfect shot get up and find a twig and i never saw that and my air was six feet left of the deer but that might not have been that probably wasn't caused by the expandable it's just caused by it deflected off this limb that i never could see but the thing is is that that expandable can open up at that time before it ever hits the deer and then that can create all sorts of issues when it actually does hit the deer. If it opened up before it hit the deer, mm. you know, you're 
That's going to change the trajectory. You're just not going to get the penetration. You're not going to get the penetration, whereas a fixed blade is going to penetrate still. It really depends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so I just have never felt comfortable coming in. Yeah. I've um, never felt comfortable with having to shoot through something at all with an expandable. Agreed. They work. I know plenty of my buddies that have killed a ton of stuff with expandables. Yeah. Yeah. They create big coals, but I I think it really comes down to personal preference. Yeah. It's, It's, they fly great, but I just. It's the same yeah. thing too as on our rifle stuff. Is what's your favorite caliber? It's yeah. it's you're boiling it down. It's boiling it down to personal preference. What experiences you've had in the mountain kind beliefs, of things. Personal beliefs. Yep. And I. That's a hundred percent it. That's archery hunting. If you feel comfortable with what's in your hand, then you're probably going to make a better shot. Agreed. Yeah. And if you don't, you learn. Mm-hmm. You learn the hard archery way. Archery can be yeah. <laughs> it can, can be learn. humbling. Yes, that's for sure. Touched on Luke's setup. Uh, what about your setup, Sam? I run a – I actually have a new bow this year. I got a Bowtech SR350. Um, I run the full metal jacket uh, arrows from Easton and the Exodus uh, Exodus broadheads um, fixed pin. And then uh, I run a hand release uh, – or thumb release, sorry. And then a spot hog uh, – three pin just the standard spot hog um for me i i'm running shooting a prime um shot prime for the last couple of years i really really like how it feels um grew up shooting hoyts and um there's just different feels to the back wall and it's just something that i really liked how it felt um Again, personal preference, it's, and it's how it feels to you. And I, if you're going to get a new bow, I encourage you to go out and shoot, shoot them all. Yes. yes. All right, because some people like one thing and other people like another, and it doesn't matter what they think. It's only what matters. It's going to work for you. Um, I'm shooting a Fast Eddie three-pin slider, uh, and we talk about this stuff all the time. You guys you know, shoot two-pin. Um, some of you have fixed. And just for my setup and what I prefer, I like having those three pins and then be able to slide off the fourth. So I have 20, 30, 40, and then I slide off my 40, uh, you know, for anything longer. Now I'm not in whitetail. I'm not shooting any farther than that, but, you know, going out west, uh, you're going to have those longer shots. You shoot a lot of the 3D shoots. You shoot total archery challenge, everything like that. I do, and, you know, practice religiously shooting out to, you know, 80-plus yards, not that I'm going to take something yep. at those distances, but you, know, you practice at that distance so that when you go to take a 30-yard shot or 40-yard shot, it's a chip shot. Shooting, shooting, especially for me, 60 yards plus 60, 70, 80, has, it really magnifies any imperfections you might have in your form. It, it totally if does. Put, yeah, if, if you have any jitters, because it's going to be extremely magnified. If you're, not only jitters, it's, it's just your overall form and, you know, your release and holding it. I think really shooting It makes you distance, steady everything. Correct. I think shooting distance really helped me refine my shot process as into... Get to see your imperfections correct. a lot yeah. quicker. They, they're magnified at that long distance, so... If you have a tendency to miss, like, a certain direction or... Yeah, if you're you know, pulling it or, yeah. you know, pushing it, it's, it's that's where it exponentially farther out at the farther yeah. you get. Yep. And you may not see those at 20 and 30 yards, but you get out past that, it's, it's, it's a game changer. Um, let's also talk about releases. I, you both have just switched to a different kind of release. 
Um, something in the ways that I've used for years, but I know uh, Sam has bounced around with a lot of different ideas. Uh, Sam or Luke, why don't you tell us about that? I know I bounced, I mean, for shooting rifle for a lot of years and what, what we said about what we said about before is um, what being comfortable with and with being a competitive rifle shooter for so many years, I was just so comfortable with a trigger release mm-hmm. of being able to have a trigger release, feel it, everything like that, where been talking, doing some research, and um, I ended up going with, and I know Sam did too, I ended up going with a Cobra Harvester. And just off of how I like it, how it felt in my hand, how much easier it is to draw that bow, because on a cold November morning, you're stiff sitting there all day, and I noticed with my trigger release, it takes a lot more torque to start getting that bow going because you got to get the tension here on your wrist. It's tightening up on the shaft, and then it's coming back. Mm-hmm. Where I noticed with shooting a thumb now is I can grab it, as I, and it's a lot smoother, and it's right back. And I did used to shoot traditional a long time ago, so it's very similar for me. It's like shooting, shooting fingers, is that you can bring it back, bury it, and start squeezing it's Mm -hmm. it's a very for the position that you're in shooting a bow it's a lot more natural to do it and has less tendencies it gives you better form so i i explained this to somebody recently um if you're shooting a lot like and you're practicing a lot i think that having thumb release back tension release those types of releases are going to be the most accurate however i've noticed that if you're going to pick up your bow and you haven't shot a lot you're better you're going to be more accurate and it's going to be easier for you to understand a, just an index finger release mm-hmm. initially. And that's, the problem is is that it can create a lot of bad tendencies. Yeah. You can punch your trigger very hard or you know a lot and uh, but there's some people who feel that's the best way to shoot with a bow because during hunting season is cuz sometimes they have to punch the not punch their trigger but they want to have control of when that. They don't want to be surprised by it going yes. off. Whereas, yeah, an index or I mean, a thumb release, like a proper form, it's a surprise release. So for me, I switched. I made the switch. Boy, it's probably been over ten years now that I've been shooting a handheld release, thumb release. Mm-hmm. Um, have it positioned more back into my hand, where it's not necessarily my fingertip but I'm using my whole hand. It's more of a squeeze. So it's kind of similar to, I guess, maybe a back tension, but it's it's not necessarily the way I use it that was set up. Um, but the reason I did it, and this is kind of what made me switch, it wasn't necessarily for the form or any of that, is when I was in a tree stand and I had my bow hanging on the thing, on the little arm, it would just hang there. Having a strap attached to your wrist and flopping around. It's always a noise that you can make. So by going to the thumb release, I had my release preset hanging on my bow. All I got to do is then reach over and grab that release Yeah, and go. Whereas, you know, before you're, you're clicking it in and getting ready and it's just too many other things. And I also liked having both my hands free. So if I'm, you know, using my binos or grunt tube or whatever, my hands are free. I don't have to worry about it clanging off something. It, it's just perfect situation. And I how thought. many days are you sitting there bored with an index release? I know I'm guilty of it. You're sitting there bored. Next thing you're doing, 
Yeah. You know, <laughs> the original fidget spinner. The original fidget spinner. <laughs> and that's transitioning to, you know, the more I shoot now, the yeah. better form, you know, you don't You're way have more accurate any of those, stuff. you know, I mean, you do have bad tendencies here and there, but if you, the more you shoot, the I, more consistent you can get and get rid of those things. For somebody that's just getting into archery, 100% index. I would recommend just to learn your bow is shoot index, yeah. index trigger. Where I mean, well, if you're just getting into it, you could, <laughs> I mean, it's good to start with proper form. It, yeah, but it is definitely easier for somebody to pick up. Correct. Right? And where repeat, yeah. I know I've noticed with going now to the thumb style release is that especially shooting downhill or uphill it's a lot nicer it's a lot more comfortable and like guys don't like it because it is a surprise essentially but i feel more in control is that i'm coming back on it and especially me and sam were talking about this too is when i first picked it up and of course me and him are talking all the time about like hey what are you seeing with it what are you doing what you're set at is i was shooting animal versus shooting spot so like out the backyard practice and focusing in on one little spot i was having target panic which essentially with a thumb release is supposed to help eliminate that mm-hmm. but i went and shot a little bit of techno and that's a it's a i have a place down by the house that has one and it's amazing and i went in there and started shooting out with a thumb release and i'm like wow it's instinctive and that's what archery form really should be is instinctive is instinctive you really shouldn't be thinking about it it should be a surprise it's all natural. And once I started shooting a thumb release as in, say, like in a hunting scenario, like as an instinctive drawing it back, burying it, getting my tension right, and just starting to let it go. Just pulling through. Just yep. pulling through, and I love it. Yeah. Absolutely you follow through it. your shot, in my opinion, is a lot better. Yes. Yeah. You're not doing this. Like, you're but not I, like I like, peaking. too, that, you know, you can customize it. So my stand, I can customize, you know, where that thumb placement is, the angle of it. That's how ours you know, are, too. How, how much pressure I need to release that. Uh, hook and, yeah. and it's. I feel like they're more customizable to you than than a regular trigger release. Uh, not that there isn't some of that tension stuff that you can do with those, but it just feels more personal, and then that yeah. only leads to more confidence as you're shooting more comfort. I yeah, uh, I've never had the like thumb style release. I've only ever used trigger, um, so I can't say you know obviously which one I would prefer over the other, but I can say as far as the things I don't like about the trigger is I don't really have a lot of confidence in it. And it's not just, is it going to work? It's a matter of, is that trigger going to be right where I need it when I get to my anchor point? When I start to bring my finger down, is it going to be right where I want it to be, mm-hmm. where I'm going to feel comfortable? And because it, the thing will swivel around, swivel around to get it, you know, to move it out longer for yep. longer fingers. And even with that set screw, it still just kind of shakes back and forth. I just don't trust it. And that might be the, the brand that I'm using, but, I mean, that's the only experience I have. I would probably like to use a thumb release, um, but I just don't know m- much about them. And that's what's nice, too, about you can go to, you know, these archery shops, and, or you can go to our, our new archery shop and try out different releases while you're trying out different bows. Um, Try them. I mean, that's the only way you're going to find yeah. one that you really like is if, you know, see what's different, how they feel in your hand and, you know, your anchor point and everything's a little bit different. Um, it's worth the investment. It, yeah. it is. It is. Is there a significant price difference yes. between the two? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would yeah, say they're a little bit more expensive. Yeah. yeah. Most okay. of your thumb releases, you're looking between the 175 to, well, 375 Three. mark. Yep. Yeah. Where a lot of your index, you can spend twenty bucks, 
or you know, I got forty dollar True Fire is what I'm using. Yeah, yeah. it and it, it's anywhere from. And there's 20. nothing wrong with that. It's no. just that you will find that when if you're looking at a competitive shooter or somebody who does shoot a lot, they will be using those. It's a little crisper. Stuff. And I was just getting ready to say that I've noticed with shooting thumb, is that it's a lot more consistent. The one it's going to go compared to shooting a trigger. Well, too, and there's different style class. You know, you can get the little hook, or it's just there's try them all. Yeah. I would say another thing too I hate about the uh, the trigger release is the, just the wrist strap because I've got you know say depending on how late in the season it is you know if it's gotten a little chillier I might have three sleeves around my wrist and then I've got to wear this thing then getting my hand through the backpack right. and then climbing the stand all these things I mean granted I don't climb the stand with it but if I'm walking out to the stand I'll have my release on my wrist again that's something that I'm not dealing with I've Hook my. I do like the uh, what you said. I do I like hook it on my bow. The idea of my just hands are free. If I'm walking, I just go in my pocket, so I don't have That's to worry. Right. Yep. Now you do run the risk of losing it, and I have done that. It happened to me when I was in Illinois hunting. And I dropped it. I don't know where. I got to stand. <laughs> I, like, I keep I my no old release. index in my pack. Just Thank in case. God, I had. I think you, you should backup, always keep a backup. But still, you do run that risk because it's not attached to you. And then you um, painted yours blue, and I painted mine bright green. Yeah. So it, that we, it's, <laughs> yeah. Ours are orange now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I knew when he had that happen that I painted mine right away because I was like, yeah, that's not because we had camo ones when we first got. Yeah, first I think they were releases. they were true fire ones, and they were yeah. they were on the cheaper side, but it was a good. I, it just blended place, in. Yeah. I, same, I have no same idea. Same reason I will never buy arrows wrapped in camo. Again. <laughs> I've lost so many arrows. I'm <laughs> shooting the retros. I love them. That's what. But I have bright fletchings. I'm looking at getting those. Good luck finding them. No, we have uh, maybe they're not retros. We have the they have uh, the autumn orange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so what before that's what's so it's the same arrow. When they first re-released them here two years ago, they did it like the old aluminum arrows yep. that Easton used to do. Those are the ones I have that are the camo ones that are the anodized camo. Yeah, and we have they the just, Easton uh, like a burnt orange. The autumn orange, and yeah. then they started doing that. A little bit after the well, you are camo. what twenty six going on fifty. Oh yeah, so, I'm a total very boomer. True. <laughs> no, you are a boomer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it looks like we're, we're for caliber choice and hunting style. Yeah, that's yeah, no doubt about it. Some of us are old fashioned. Twenty two silhouette. <laughs> well, I mean, this is one of the longest episodes we've done because um, it's one of my favorite subjects to. I'm just disappointed we didn't even get into the hot air balloon scenario. Well, I was going to ask if oh, we wanted my. to touch on the thermal debate because I hear that's a pretty hot topic. In that was hot topic this morning before because we, we were game planning about the podcast. So let's, anybody, let's wrap the podcast up. I want to talk about this. All right. So go ahead. Go Luke, have, how about it, engineers? Luke begins to tell a story about hot air balloons. Now helium balloons. Helium balloons. And Stu, you know, un. He did not know this theory. Uneducated. And I personally <laughs> have known this this theory for a while, and I have run into it. So immediately I agreed with Luke. Yes, this is a theory. Um, so there is a, if a lot of it comes from the hunting beast. If you look at the forums, so that's somewhere I learned a lot of my, my stuff from. My tactics from it, in a sense. Or scouting techniques or where to look. And just learned a lot from the information. But they talk about... If you find a hot air balloon, helium or heal, yeah, hot air balloon, a helium balloon I'm in the woods, big difference. Um, you should check. If you what's find one, you got to call the FFA. You'll find a buck bed, and I have ran into this story, but Luke ran into one yesterday. 
Same thing. I've, I've, still, I've <laughs> never it. heard of this theory. We'll talk about, let's talk about the science of it. What is it exactly that we're talking about? So <laughs> the theory, <laughs> I wish we were live video in the day because you should just see Stu's face. But so the theory is with a helium balloon, it goes up into the atmosphere. Once it gets so high up into the atmosphere, it deflates. Mm-hmm. So it's going to start coming back down to earth and it's following the thermal and vortexes of the winds as they're coming back down. And bucks will lay in an area where they can sense, get sent from all over from the different wind conditions, the way that it's rolling, everything like that. And the theory is, is that that balloon will follow it down to the centralized area where all the wind essentially meets in a thermal. And there's a buck, a mature buck, Typically, will lay in that area, and I've Utilize seen it, those thermal. That thermal <laughs> and I have pool. seen it multiple times. It's, where it's, it's so there's a lot of science that it, Luke is putting into it, but I, I don't disagree with the science. All right, but I'm talking practicality and reality. In in my sense of maybe it's just me being optimistic. I'm gonna have to pull this my phone is out a and show uh, some pictures of some absolute perfect <laughs> some, some scenario balloons. that they're describing. Yes, and has. Probably zero relevance to the real world. I think what really happened is yes, there is some. Sig- if you're, it's a possibility. The wind and the thermals yes. are going to pull there. But and let's the, the, let's describe. But that I think this it turned coming into down a joke into the atmosphere. It turned into every time somebody finds a balloon in the woods, they, there's a giant buck hiding around the corner. <laughs> there every time. That is what that and is what we're getting to. And that's what Stu thought I was talking about this morning, which I was not. So I. So I immediately a, debunked this whole you never know. thought process <laughs> by, um, so uh, you're telling me that there was no wind that day on the ground surface. Um, there was, you know, no rain. The trees didn't have any effect. It just came down in a perfect scenario because of the thermal dynamics into the perfect spot. And I, I simply said, all right, well, let's let off 100 balloons, and they should all come back down to the same spot <laughs> if by the, your, your theory. And... <laughs> So it's totally random, and I I don't doubt that the thermal dynamics had something to do with it. And but putting that into your thought process to where you're going to set and find a buck is going to be released is going to land correct. It's just something to keep in mind. That's like if you if you rigged up and welded a frame and shot your rifle perfectly up in the air, it's not going to come back down in the barrel. Correct. No, but you should call me crazy because the forums are filled with uh, pictures of balloons out there. Yeah. So one of the articles I was reading actually was had worded it like this. They had said, if you're ever out and about and you're doing some scouting and you happen to see like a mylar balloon, which obviously would be helium then, um, that your chances are because of hitting a thermal or vortex on the way down to the ground, if you find a balloon on the ground, chances are you're staring at a, you're standing in a prime bedding area. And the reason is, is just that there, that wind is being pulled to that area. So, which is where bucks want to sit. Hub. Unless the wind that day is pushing it somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) It should be. It's a point of interest. It's not. It's just a reference for that area. I I, I gotcha. I I can't wait. I I just disagree 100%. (laughs) Your brother's going to give me your Onyx pin, and I can't wait. We could get an argument here just... Because I'm gonna go to Weiss. Like to disagree, or we <laughs> open a day of archery season where I know Stu's sitting. I'm gonna go to Weiss and buy about a hundred of them. The next one I go. see in the woods, I'm hanging a stand. That's just 
Rumor has it there all day. And when you shoot the 30 pointer over it, don't come crying to me about, hey, "Hey, Luke, you were right. I will give you guys all the credit in the world. We'll have to be careful because from what I hear on the internet, helium is a finite resource. And we're going to be out of it here soon. I think we were supposed to originally run out of it this year. Uh, This was like 10 years ago. I heard, like, oh, helium is going to be not a thing anymore. So we'll see. I guess if we don't have any helium balloons, we'll never find those bedded bucks. Yeah. Pro tip. Use helium bloom. It's a theory. It's a scouting technique. I'm going to let one out every time I get out of the truck before going in the woods. <laughs> it'll lead you. I'm going to follow that thing in the spot. That's where I got to go hunt today. It's a $300 litter and fine, just so you know. Right, Instead of killing bucks, we're just so going to kill a bunch of turtles. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I think uh, we'll wrap that up for today. I appreciate having the conversation with you guys. Uh, always a blast having you in here. And uh, if you're out there, and, and I want to know what you think of the, the helium theory. Have you heard of it before? Is this the first time you're hearing about it? There's already podcasts out there, episodes, articles, uh, talking about it. But there's no real back science unless you talk to Stu, then he'll, he'll, he'll point you in the right direction. It was a hot topic this morning in your optic sales floor. <laughs> Go ahead and uh, if you have any show suggestions, any comments, questions, uh, or anything like that, you want to reach out, you can do that by emailing us at grouptherapy at eurooptic.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And hopefully it won't be another month before you hear from us again. So that's it. Thanks for listening and have a great day.